0: Welcome, welcome, welcome to Real Job Talk, the podcast that's about job careers and what's not said at the water cooler. I'm Kat Troyer. I'm Liz Bronson. And tonight, we've got a very special guest. Liz, I'm going to let you introduce Carlos.
1: As Kat said, we have an exciting guest, TEDx speaker and author of The Un-American Dream, Mr. Carlos Hidalgo. Carlos is joining us to talk about building a human-first corporate culture, an exciting topic which explores authentically creating and maintaining the work environment that will support your employees as people and therefore building your organization. Carlos, please tell our audience a little bit about yourself and your unique and exciting journey.
2: Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to speak to both of you and to be on the podcast. Uh, You know, myself actually started out of school in a nonprofit of all things (laughs) and uh, didn't know it at the time, but that's really where I started to get my feet wet in terms of marketing. And then I actually went to go work for a marketing company and stayed in it ever since. And then in 2005, I started uh, co-founded a marketing agency. And that agency grew quite significantly from just two guys hanging out a shingle to, uh, I think, when I left, we were at 30-some employees, landing brand-name clients. And uh, I put everything I had into the business. And my unique journey was, uh, towards the end of that tenure, I really just hit a wall and crashed and burned because we only have 168 hours in a week which mm-hmm. we can give, and when you're giving them all to your business and not your relationship, something's got to give. And uh, so in 2016, I made the decision to leave that agency and start uh, a new company a different way and a, a different focus. And uh, out of that came the book, The Un-American Dream.
0: Wonderful. Well, we're looking forward to kind of digging in and talking to you a little bit about your experiences and and the work that you're doing now because you've kind of built that in. Let's jump right in. And can we talk about uh, your definition of a human first corporate culture?
2: Yeah, I I think I put a video out last week and I was in a meeting and I think I kind of got some some brushback from somebody who was like, hey, you have to understand what they mean. But Mm -hmm. the guy kept referring to his employees as assets. Mm. You know, our our valuable assets and i'm like, you know, you don't line up people on a balance sheet Mm -mm. And what we have to understand as executives as entrepreneurs who start businesses All of us are in the people business And so we're human there's humanness. We have to recognize we have bad days. We have fights with our spouses you know, we have pets that we Grow fond of who go away and 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 unfortunately die and leave us and so we have to really understand that this is what we deal with on a day-to-day basis. And when we refer to them as assets or team members, in my view, we really dehumanize and we miss the mark. And therefore, it becomes really easy to get quite robotic and real sterile in terms of how we build organizations.
1: So talk to us a little bit about the opposite of that, right? So you you have this definition of human-first corporate culture, but what is that What are the benefits? What does that look like? Not referring to your people who actually have personas as assets and more as humans. Tell us a little bit about that shift.
2: Yeah, I think what it does is it puts you in a position to say, how can I get the best out of this individual? And then how can we put this individual in the best situation possible? I think it also changes. And I've been part of organizations where somebody does something. And the first question is, what were they thinking? How could they do that? Well, we should be asking the question of, okay, what is it about them or what happened in that scenario that caused them to do that? Mm-hmm. So I'm not saying that we're going to have a you know, a big, just happy club. we have to run businesses, but I think when we change the tone and the tenor, we get more out of our employees, they become content, and they start to find fulfillment in their work.
0: Which is ideal, right?
2: Sure, yeah. Who doesn't want that, mm-hmm. right? That's an exactly. HR director's, uh, HR mm-hmm. director's dream.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. So are there any risks to having a human-first culture?
2: Oh, I think there are. I think there's just because we're human beings, there's risks, right? (laughs) Right. Um, I I think you. There is a risk of hey, somebody may take advantage of that, and I've been asked that. So, what if somebody takes advantage of that? Okay, well then you deal with that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, we don't. We don't not do things. Sorry for the double negative, because there's a risk involved. Then if that was the case, none of us would start a business, Mm -hmm. right? I believe firmly when you set an expectation for people and you tell them you trust them and you truly care about their well-being. I would say 99% are going to rise to that occasion and respond in a positive way. So I'm good with a 1% risk.
1: I love that because I feel like, yes, there are these taker advantages or people. And if you're willing to deal with those, then yep. you're still, you're mitigating your risk. Yeah. And then it's, and then you still have the 99% who are really happy and feel seen. And heard,
2: and and I think in that those who take advantage, that ninety nine percent, they kind of weed that individual out on their own, and it becomes a real uncomfortable. And I have seen people move from taking advantage to, oh, that's not the culture here, and I can actually excel if I buy into the human first culture. And I've seen that shift, and management never had to get involved.
0: Cool, well, that's great. It's it's like they're self selecting either in or out of the culture. That's mm-hmm. right. Yep. Mm-hmm.
1: I think that happens with all kinds of corporate culture attributes.
2: Oh, sure. I think as human beings, we want to align. Either we're going to align to a culture or we're not. It, it's mm-hmm. no fun to be in a company when you know you are literally the sore thumb that sticks out and you don't align to the culture. It's not fun for the company and it's not fun for you as an
0: individual. So it, becomes, it becomes really clear when it's not a good fit mm-hmm. right. on all Absolutely. sides, right? Yes.
1: So talk to us a little bit about you know, this is a big blanket term, and and there are giant enterprises with hundreds of thousands of people, and mom and pop shops with three. And mm-hmm. so, do you believe all companies can do that? And what does it look like at different sizes and and just different types of company?
2: Yeah, I think it. I think it can happen, and I hear that a lot. Well, you know, in the large enterprise, and I'm like, no, it it doesn't matter. And I think what it ha- what you do is it starts at the top, mm-hmm. and so I think between if if you took a fortune 50 or a mom and pop i think the real difference is the complexity and how far you go so if i'm working for a company and there's four people the ceo and i may have a relationship if i'm working for google Mm -hmm. pretty good chance that not everybody there has a relationship with the CEO, but I believe that the CEO is responsible and the executive team is responsible for setting the tone and then enabling and equipping and empowering their management, however far down that goes, to say, this is how we do this Mm -hmm. uh, as an organization. So an example of that is I used to partner with a software company and we had an issue and it was an integrity issue. Mm -hmm. So I called the president and said, hey. Uh, we need to talk about this. This is this is going to be a difficult conversation. Mm-hmm. And to his credit, sure. he we, we met for breakfast the next day at this uh, trade show we were both at. He called that other individual and started the meeting and said, we have conduct unbecoming of an officer. <laughs> and he talked about the culture that he was trying to set in that organization. And I've respected him so amazingly well. The individual stayed, learnings for all, but it wasn't this immediate firing. It wasn't this ranting and raving. Somebody made a mistake. And you know what? We've all lived long enough. Mm-hmm. We all have plenty to our credit.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And everyone does does make mistakes eventually. So, I mean, sure. building that into a culture is really important that, you know, mistakes are mistakes are learning opportunities. Yeah, and I think we we
2: can't build a culture where people are afraid to make a mistake. Um, I you know I I grew up playing sports as a as a kid and a teenager, and I remember our coaches would say, "You guys are playing so tight. Just go have fun."
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And when you when you went into a game and you weren't so fearful of making a mistake, you actually played better. Mm-hmm. And we need to do the same for our people and our companies.
0: Absolutely. So let's talk about um, you know how do you recommend that folks build a foundation of a human first culture
2: i think just understanding asking yourself what would i want as a as a employee what would i want to be uh, you know is is a mentorship Would I want to be mentored in the company? Would I want to have that if I started early in my career? So I think some of the steps are just really saying what are the values we see in our people and what are the values that our people have that we can help protect? Now, the larger you get, it doesn't mean you're going to be able to serve everybody's needs Mm -hmm. individually. But I think what you'll start to find is a lot of your employees value the same thing. So, how do you enable that in a corporate way that's responsible, but also allows your people to give the best of themselves when they are there at work. Mm
1: -hmm. And, you know, I'm a huge fan of the golden rule. Mm. And I think that if you're trying to build that human first culture, if you think, how would I want to be treated Mm -hmm. in that situation, you know, do unto others. And all of a sudden it becomes a lot clearer most of the time what needs to be done to turn that shift. And then, as you said, empowering your managers to turn the ship.
2: Right. And I think just, I'm always amazed at organizations when you say, have you talked to your people? And they go, well, no. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, your people will tell you what they need, what they want, what they desire. Um, And and in my first agency, I remember we gave a bonus to somebody because they did a really good job. We gave them a, a cash bonus. And they were like, hey, thanks. But I... I I really valued this. So money wasn't a motivator for them, but we as the executive thought, hey, well, you know, it's gotta be money. Mm -hmm. We, We failed in that instance.
1: So how does someone get to that? To use your failure as the example, like we're like, great, cash bonus. And I'm sure that made the person feel good and they weren't like, oh no, not cash for me or something. But if you're thinking, especially larger organization, how do you get to that and keep record of it? Because people come and go. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
2: First of all, it's not a set it and forget it. It's not like, hey, we pulled the employees in 2016. So this is what... Because you're right, right? In Uh big companies, people come and go. I think it is a a constant ongoing discipline Uh that you have to bring into an organization. Now, if you come into an organization and it's a toxic culture, and I one time walked into an office and I don't think he was kidding when his sign said, the beatings will continue until morale improves, just based on my meeting with the individual... You have to understand that culture change in an organization, depending on the size, can take up to three years. Yeah. And so I think what you have to do is say, what are the milestones we are going to achieve Mm -hmm. and where do we want to start? And I I firmly believe the best place to start is go out and survey your people Mm -hmm. and find out what they like, what they don't like, what they value, and what would make a good working condition for them.
0: Absolutely. Just today, wrapped up uh, doing interviews with one of my clients with every employee that they have. And, yeah. you know, ask them, what do you like most? What do you like least? If you were managing yourself, how would you manage yourself differently? And then I do an open-ended question, asking them, you know, any other feedback that you're comfortable sending up. Right. And it's amazing what people have right. to offer, right? And what I learn, you know, and, and then the challenge is implementing that change, right?
2: Yeah. And I think just the fact that people saying, wow, they're listening.
0: The company cares.
2: We all want to be heard. We mm-hmm. all have and and I always get this well, if we ask, then we have to implement. I'm like, no, you don't. People don't expect all of their mm-hmm. wins and desires to be implemented mm-hmm. at an individual level. Just the fact that we're stopping to listen and hear them, that speaks volumes and really makes somebody feel valued.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Overwhelmingly, when you ask them what do you like most, it's it's the people and the culture is the response. Of course. And yeah. that's because they've built a really strong culture. Yep. So I I highly recommend doing, you know, stay interviews, employee engagement interviews. There's some good information to be had there.
2: I work with a client of mine who on a quarterly basis, they do employee net promoter scores. Oh, interesting. Which which I loved. I absolutely love that they do that.
1: Mm -hmm. You made me think of a story when I was very early at VMware, we had a barbecue and Mm -hmm. the CEO at the time, Diane Green, got up and she said, I want to apologize to all of you. Because I always know who to go to because people tell me, but there was no intranet site with org charts. So people mm. as a company was growing, didn't know who's in sales ops or who's in finance. Mm. And so you know, her, she said, I've hired an operations person. The first thing they're going to do is create this. I'm so sorry that it's been hard for you. I mean, I was there for nine years and there's a reason. And it struck me so hard that she they heard and they didn't fix it right away. You can't. Right. But they told them, I'm so sorry. We're fixing this now that we know about it. And I think that that along the lines of what you're saying of really just hearing what people need to get their jobs done and be happy.
2: And it's interesting because you said she did that at a barbecue and I think it's important to note the culture was more about your CEO getting up and apologizing for a failure. Oh, the yeah. culture wasn't the barbecue. Oh gosh no. And and you have so many people who say, "Oh, we have a fun culture. You know, we have ping pong tables and foosball tables." That's not culture. No. And I think we really have to understand the difference between trying to entertain at work <laughs> and really building a healthy culture that values the individual. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Um, so you talked about surveying and surveying is such an important tool, but what are some other steps that you think, you know, post-survey, mm-hmm. what are some other steps that you would advise companies to follow?
2: I'm going to use an example from my daughter's university. She attends Belmont University and I've had uh, several interactions with the president, not by my own doing, but by his. Mm. And this is a man who is known for just walking up to students on the sidewalk, knowing their name and saying, how's it it going? He's asking them. This is, you know, in all effect, it's the CEO of the organization. Mm -hmm. And he gets his hands dirty. And what I mean by that is last year, when my wife drove out to Nashville, With her, they're unloading the car. And this guy, and and my wife says this guy in jeans and a t-shirt walks up. He's like, you guys need help? There's no elevator in the dorm. Hotter than heck in in Nashville in the summertime. Turns out it was the president of the university.
0: Yeah. Nice.
2: You know, he gets his hands dirty. He's not up in this ivory tower. So Mm -hmm. as managers, there needs to be an understanding that sitting in an office you know, just running meetings is not your job. Your number one priority is to serve the people that report to you. And that goes all the way to the top. And if you can start to serve them in the way that recognizes their individual contributions and recognizes their value, just by talking to them. And I've encountered CEOs who I don't need to know anybody's name. How pompous is that?
0: (laughs) That's horrible.
2: That must show up in the company culture too. Oh, well, sure it does. I mean, it's interesting. And, um, you know, I live in Colorado, so we have to fly United Airlines a lot. You talk to the employees and the switch of the CEOs, and you can see a difference in the employees versus when Smyzik was there and, and, you know, he he did a lot of things well. He led the merger and things, but people said he was not really interested in a people culture. Oscar has taken over the former CEO of Alcoa and you can just sense the difference. Look at Southwest employees. Mm. These people know they're cared about. And you know what? They pass that on to their passengers and their customers.
1: So
0: true. Absolutely. And they're, they're given the free range to, uh, to have fun. And I think that the passengers have fun, you know, as a result of it. Mm-hmm.
2: They're empowered. And you know what? I'm sure there's been a few who've taken advantage of that. <laughs> right. and they're probably
0: no longer with Southwest Airlines <laughs> or went through
2: intensive training.
0: Right. <laughs> right. Agreed. So my guess is there's different approaches for different sizes of companies for building this human first culture. Yep. Maybe we could start with a small company. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the differences in the approach.
2: Yeah, I think for you know being a small business uh, owner myself and uh, two times over now, I would just ask people like, "What do you really desire? What do you want to get out of being here?" Mm -hmm. Um, Also, giving them the freedom to say, "Hey, I understand nothing lasts forever." And so Mm -hmm. one of the things I always tried to communicate is if you want to move on I don't want you to have to go through this cloak and dagger type of oh, I got a Appointment I have to go and you're really going to an interview. I really want to help you grow in your career And while I desire that to be here at the first agency I I ran That would be great But if you really believe what's best for you and your family to be somewhere else I want to help enable that Mm -hmm. so there was a freedom and a recognition of just because you work here doesn't mean this is your world and your center of all things. Mm -hmm. I think what we can do in larger companies is managers can be equipped and enabled to have that and then say, Hey, you know, what are you trying to get out of? So for instance, if somebody comes into your organization and you're part of a fortune 500 and they're two years in the marketplace, find out what their career aspirations are and then ask them. So in the context here, What do you think we can do? And then also bring some ideas to the table to them. Because again, you're now investing in them as an individual. And not only are you going to have a happier employee, not only recognizing that you, uh, or, or showing that you care about them, what a great retention tool. Mm-hmm. To say, we're going to help you grow your career. We're going to give you opportunity. We're going to give you challenges. And I've had bosses on both sides. And I'll tell you, I gravitated to the ones who let me get in just a little bit over my head, mm-hmm. but were there to help, not criticize. And were constantly encouraging me and asking me, so what do you see next? What do you see next? And then at the same time, allowing me to leave work at work. Mm-hmm. Which is harder, I think, sometimes in larger companies.
0: Right.
1: And I think a, an add on question for that is when they first join, so why did you join us?
2: It's a great question. Mm-hmm.
1: The offer signs, you, were, were, you know, our interview hat is off. Why did you join us? And ultimately, I think you're going to hear, I thought I would have the opportunity to right. fill in the blank. And so then you learn all of a sudden the motivation. Behind why the person is there right now. And so you can check in on that. But you can also, if you can't give that because you're a small company or because that opportunity isn't there, you can give them the skills they need and and help them know when it's time to go.
2: Well, you know, and it's interesting because one of the things that I learned through the process and um, of of just running companies is when you even back up before there's an offer signed, Mm -hmm. and really, I can teach you a skill, I can't teach you a culture. And so if you're going to really be part of an organization, we need you to fit in. And here's what we stand for. I'm constantly amazed. I asked uh, a colleague not long ago, I said, so what are your corporate values? And she laughed and she said, if you asked our six executives, you'd get six different answers. So how can you build the culture when nobody understands the values? And again, uh, Kat, to your question, I think that's a lot harder in a large multinational organization. I'm not saying any of this stuff is easy,
1: right? <laughs> oh, good,
0: because it's not.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you'll get it done by tomorrow.
0: Yeah, but you know, some some larger corporations do a really good job at it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're very clear about what the values are and they make sure that at least their leaders are clear on that so that they can bring them down.
2: Yeah. They
1: interview to those
2: questions. Abs- absolutely, they and they should. And I also think they want to be, the leaders want to be accountable to that And I love the example of VMware of getting up and saying, hey, you know what? We dropped the ball. I'm sure she walked off that stage and there was just an increase collectively of respect. Because how many times do you hear a CEO kick the can down the road, blame somebody else, Mm -hmm. dodge, to get up there and say, we blew it? That that takes a lot of guts. Mm
1: -hmm. We blew it and we're fixing it. And instead of just when they launch it, like, here's the org chart. Like, no. that's different.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: And so someone's listening to this, right? And they're in an organization and maybe they're, you know, accountant number 17 in a bigger organization and they want to influence change. What would you recommend doing, you know, especially for those who are not on the top of the org chart? It's easier to manage down than to manage up with search
2: Yeah, that is, that is a great question. I used to tell my team at my first agency, lead where you are. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, I think sometimes that's a cop-out. Well, I don't I don't have any direct reports. I don't have anybody. You still have colleagues. Yeah. You still have to interact with people. You still have to interact with your manager. I remember one time I, I spoke with a manager and I said, I really need you to stop micromanaging me. If you want to get the best out of me, mm-hmm. you need to get off my back and let me do my work. I will be the first to call you. I said that the control freak thing just isn't working for me. It wasn't an easy conversation to have. But I knew that if I hadn't done anything, I had to manage up. If I hadn't mentioned that, it would have come out sideways in a pretty ugly (laughs) uh, display at some point in time. And to his credit, he was like, you know what, I, I didn't even realize I was doing it. So I think we have this idea sometimes as well, I'm just an individual contributor, I can't drive change. Some of the biggest changes that have happened in organizations started with individual contributors who didn't have big teams and they just started to set the tone with their colleagues and then communicated up to their bosses. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Or they open their mouth and pointed out a problem when others may have been afraid.
2: Yeah. I mean, I remember I, I one of the software companies I worked for, I ended up calling the CMO and he and I still touch base every, every so often, being much younger than I probably wasn't as diplomatic as I should have been. But I really let him have it. I was really upset and I didn't think the company backed up the values that they had just printed out and sent to all of us. And I actually said to him, I just threw those in the trash. (laughs) Yeah, I I was not a great employee. But to his credit, instead of being like, how dare you? Or, you know, do you know that I'm on the executive team? He sat and he listened. And he said, Mm -hmm. you know what? You have some valid points. Mm -hmm. I don't know that I agree with all of them, which was fair. But thank you for calling. That's huge. Mm -hmm. So he allowed and he opened the door for me to manage up.
0: That's great. So, Carlos, you've built, you know, your career and have had uh, some stumbles, right? Which which has led yeah. you to where you are. So let's talk about the difference between your first career outlook and uh, human first culture.
2: Yeah, I would say, I mean, I've always been a people person.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm not surprised. I, I, I get that <laughs> sense. <laughs> uh,
2: even when I was with the software companies, it was all about ascending upward, Mm-hmm. I've never been one for politics. I've never been one for backstabbing. But I was always bound and determined to get the promotion, get mm-hmm. the raise, get the new title. Because someday when I did all that, mm-hmm. then I could do whatever I wanted. And so I kept living on the promise of someday. And so then when I left the software company and started my first agency, I really did it to be home more. Um, and that backfired because this little thing... Thing called ego got in the way, um, and as that first business started to grow, it was we need to grow more, we need to make more, we need more mm-hmm. clients, we need more more people. And I remember, and I even just talking about it now, I just shake my head in embarrassment of like when we went from twenty five to thirty, and I'm like, now I can tell people we're a company of thirty instead of twenty five. Like that makes any difference in the world. <laughs> and so it was all driven on. What material success, mm-hmm. image, and ego. When you fall flat on your face and you hit rock bottom, you have to start to reassess a lot of things. And that's right. what I did. And so now I would say everything I do, whether it's the colleagues that I work with, the partners that I work with, the clients that I work with, I'm more vested in who they are and their well being than if they're going to, you know, how big is the statement of work that we're going to sign? I've actually told clients and prospects, I'm not going to be the best agency for you. And here's mm-hmm. why. And so I can't take your business, but I still want to engage. So if you need help, and I do, I have a, a former client. I haven't worked together in a year and I still call the CMO just to see how she's doing. Mm-hmm. Because I just really enjoyed working with her. Mm-hmm. And then secondly, we were a purpose-driven company. And so we wake up every morning with a purpose to help people, and whether that is helping our clients, helping our partners, mm-hmm. helping people, our vendors, mm-hmm. and then we also give part of our profit away to help single moms and widows in Uganda.
1: That's awesome. I think that you know one thing you talk about it being all ego, and and I hear you on that, but I also believe that as you grow the pressure gets higher, you know, you've all of a sudden you've got 25, then 30 people that you need to keep busy or you're going to lose your shirt. And so as a company grows, that pressure can mount on the leader to make sure that they can keep all their people, you know, and I would think, and tell me what you think about this, but in a human centric organization, the pressure is bigger because you care.
2: Yeah, you do care. And there's no doubt there's pressure to grow a business, to keep people so they can support what they need in their life and their families. Absolutely. But I still don't think it, you know, my, my wife and I, when we kind of came to our marriage, came to a, a breaking point when she said, I need you and your children, who at that point were all teenagers, they need you home. Mm-hmm. We need you. Mm -hmm. And my response, and again, talk about embarrassment, my response was, well, 25 people in Atlanta need me. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: And her response, I thought was great. She said, well, what about the five that you had first? And so she wasn't saying the 25 weren't important, but you know, everybody had a role in the organization. And if we enabled and empowered the right way for everybody to do that role, really what I was saying is, Hey, you know what? They really need me. And again, that was ego. So it doesn't, I agree with you that there's pressure, but I think we also have to couch that to say there our businesses, our professions are not the center and should not be the center of our world.
0: And I think once you make that shift, there's a different kind of support. And that goes back to the purpose-driven, right? Having, Being very clear on why you're doing what you're doing Mm -hmm. and then having those clear goals. So I mean, congratulations to you for making that shift because as you know, there's a pretty high percentage of people that are still in that drive, drive, drive to, you know, to make more money, to get the higher position. And, And so many of them are lacking in the personal satisfaction.
2: Yeah. I mean, I know for me, the more we we attain, the more I achieve, the more recognition I got, the more unfulfilled. And you can ask my family, the more narcissistic I became in the process, because again, we were wired for meaningful relationship. We're not wired for work. Yeah, absolutely.
1: So if I'm interviewing and I'm out there trying to figure out my next step, and I know that I want a company that values their people, what are some tips that you have for the interviewee to assess a culture? Because, you know, everyone in interview world has their smiley, happy faces on. And yeah. so how do you feel like, what questions could people ask to assess and figure out, is this a place that's actually going to value me as a human?
2: Um, I would first ask, how many emails do does the typical employee receive after 6 p.m.? And what is the expectation when they receive them? I once interviewed with, uh, somebody, he said, Oh, we don't, you know, we don't do that to our folks. And then I started to work with them and I'd open up my email box the next morning and it was 9 PM, 10 PM, 8:30, And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, this is all you do, right? You guys are tied to this. So I would ask that, um, I would, I would ask things like, what is your policy on remote work? So if I want to travel, if I want to go spend a month in, in Europe, Right. I have internet. I have phone. If and again, the job has to suit that. If you're sure. if you're field sales, you can't just all of a sudden up and <laughs> up and go. But well, but what is your policy on that? How many of your employees feel empowered to leave in the middle of the day to go see their kids' science fair speech or anything extracurricular activity? How many employees have been penalized because they've gone to their children's basketball games? Those are things because what that tells you is the company cares about you outside of your work and truly cares about your relationships, truly cares about your person, doesn't just look at you as an asset to get keep the wheels moving and and keep the gears spinning.
1: Well, they see you as a whole human. And, you know, I'm a whole human with two kids and a spouse who travels. So someone pukes, I'm out. Right. Gotta go to school. Mm -hmm. Right. And if you judge me for leaving because I've got to go get pukey, then I can't work for you.
2: You know, I had a situation one time in, in a company where it was a Friday afternoon. I had gotten everything done. It was 2.30. My boss lived in on the East Coast. I was in Texas at the time. Mm-hmm. I thought, you know what? I'm going to go home. I'm going to run through the sprinkler with my kids. And, and he happened to call me on the way home. He said, where are you? I said, I'm on my way home. I said, been a good week. And he literally was like, get your butt back to the office. Mm. You didn't call, you didn't ask. And I'm like, really? I've worked for you now for almost two years. I've never dropped the ball and you're blowing a gasket here. Yeah. That was the first point where I'm kind of like, I think, you know, I'm not far from getting out of here.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And by the way, if you're an exempt employee and not paid hourly, your hours don't really need to add up in the same way.
2: Yeah, it's Parkinson's law, right? If I give myself 60 hours to get something done, I'll take 60 hours.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: If I give myself 25, I'll get it done in 25.
0: Right. I when I was recruiting, I always wanted to talk, you know, to to engage with the people that knew how to work smart as opposed to only yeah. working hard.
2: Uh, yeah, because we reach a law of diminishing returns, and I, mm-hmm. I I read a study when I was writing and and uh, doing all the research, and I can't remember, but I want to say it's around a forty-two to forty-six hour mark. And the author <laughs> of the the report actually said you actually start working dumber, not smarter. And she's
0: right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, there's things like making sure you get enough sleep. It's uh, <sighs> it's crucial, right? It's crucial, and and we're in this culture where you know there's the glorification of busyness. And it's all, you know, people come into work, you know, I've worked in cultures where people come in and it's like a badge of honor that they only got three hours of sleep.
2: Yeah. You know, I, part of the switch I made, I get about eight to nine hours a night. Awesome. Our offices are closed on, in the, on Fridays during the summer. Nice. And that's not, Hey, we're closed so we can catch up on email. I don't open my laptop and I get more done in the time allotted I get more done in how I structure my day. I don't work past ever. Well, I shouldn't say ever. If I do, it is a rare occasion. Past six o'clock at night and I don't start work before eight in the morning.
0: Yeah, that sounds pretty balanced. Congratulations. Well, thank you. You've come far.
2: I've come a big, long <laughs> way, but it's still a practice. Yes, absolutely.
0: Absolutely. I understand that uh, Yeah, so much. Absolutely. And that's why keeping those, you know, being clear on what those goals and targets are, those, those, you know, personal self-care targets are really important too.
2: Yeah. And, you know, I think as, as leaders, if we're going to talk about that as, as being human-centered, how can we talk about that, but not take care of ourselves? And Mm -hmm. I read a report this week that said 64% of entrepreneurs say that a poor work-life balance is a necessary sacrifice. Mm -hmm. I don't want to work for somebody like that. Mm because you're telling me one thing, but you're doing another. So when I get that email from you or that text from you at 10 o'clock at night, what am I supposed to do? Ignore it? That's a lot of pressure. It's just not kind to your employees. I agree. You got me fired up.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, this is great. This is wonderful. So Carlos, what's on the horizon for you? What do you have coming up?
2: You know, uh, I just came out with the book, The Young American Dream uh, in June. So I've been spending a lot of time promoting that, talking to great folks like yourselves. Mm-hmm. I'm really excited. I, I just kind of, I've got it on a board here in my office, but I realized that I have seven different opportunities to present kind of the the contents of that book of shedding the hustle and really defining success differently and understanding our worthiness and identity is not tied in, into our jobs. So that's been a It's really a passion project of mine. It's something that I'm tirelessly talking about. And even today, I was like, I wonder if people are getting sick of me yet. Mm. But I'm just so passionate because I lived it. And, uh, so my wife and I are, are really focused on that. And then, you know, the, the consultancy that we have business CX, we have a handful of clients that we're fortunate enough to work with. And so we engage there. And then when I'm not doing either of those, I spend a lot of time in the outdoors here in Colorado, spend time with my family. And I've got one left at home who graduates, mm-hmm. starts his senior year in a week. And then who knows, all bets might be off and we may uh, start
0: the travel thing and go nuts. Awesome. Sounds like there's lots of possibilities out there. There is. So how can people find you? Yeah, so you can find
2: me if you go to uh, theunamericandream.com. You can also find me on LinkedIn. Last name is H-I-D-A-L-G-O. First name is Carlos. And then you can find me on Twitter at at C-A Hidalgo. And I am very conversational on Twitter. So um, don't be afraid to send a tweet out to me. I will definitely
0: respond. Fabulous. Fabulous. <laughs> well, it has been such a pleasure to talk to you tonight, Carlos. We, we really, this is, um, so much of your philosophy is aligned with Liz and Maya philosophy. And uh, there really is more out there than just our jobs.
2: Oh, there is so much more out there. And again, when we think about what we're wired for as human beings, Mm -hmm. When we spend 50% plus or 65, 70, 80 hours at work, we're we're missing our calling just as human beings. So I so appreciate the opportunity to talk with you both.
0: Well, wonderful. Let's uh, look forward to staying in touch. Absolutely. This is Real Job
1: Talk, a podcast about jobs, careers, and what's not said at the water cooler.
0: Our website with all Real Job Talk related information is realjobtalk.com. We'd love to hear from you. Please send us your questions, topics you'd like to talk about, and Real
1: Job Talk stories. And you may find them featured on a future episode. Use the website or email us at realjobtalkgmail.com. At
0: you can follow us on Twitter at RealJobTalk.
1: And on Instagram and Facebook at RealJobTalkShow.
0: My name is Kat Troyer. You can find me on Twitter at DailyCat. And on LinkedIn, you can find me via Kathleen Nelson Troyer.
1: And I'm Liz Bronson. On Twitter, I'm at Liz Beaks and Salt. And on LinkedIn, I'm Liz Bronson.
0: Real Job Talk is a Tech Reckoning production. Our producer is John Mark Troyer. Our graphic artists are Lexi and Zachary Bronson. And we're here by the water cooler waiting to talk with you.